Well, today we return to our series on the Gospel of John. This is the day on which the church celebrates the baptism of Jesus, which is always one of my favorite texts to preach on. I preach on it every year. And um, it's my conviction that one could preach almost the whole of the Christian faith, believe it or not, from from the baptism of Jesus. It's sort of a hinge event between the Old Testament and the New Or if not the whole of the Christian faith, a large swath of it could be preached from this event. Though, it turns out I've actually never preached on it from the Gospel of John before I realized this past week. And that is because the thing itself, the actual event of Jesus' baptism, is not recorded in John's Gospel. So, let me recap the event itself as recorded elsewhere. Right? In the context of Jesus' baptism in the other Gospels, you have John the Baptist preaching fire and brimstone sermons of repentance. The people come confessing their sins, and John baptizes them. Jesus also comes, and upon his being baptized, the Spirit descends in the form of a dove, And the Father's voice from heaven says, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Right? I'm sure many of you or most of you know the story, know the event. Now, our text from this morning, from John's Gospel, is John's testimony about Jesus drawn from the event of his baptism. It's sort of John's brief memoir of the baptism. And that makes this a very valuable text. In the other Gospels, we don't have any reflection on the event from John. Here we do. In fact, in our text, the Baptist, John the Baptist himself says twice in this text, this short little text from John chapter 1, that he did not know Jesus. Now, he doesn't mean he didn't know who he was. He means he did not know him as the coming one, the anointed one, the Messiah. He did not know him until he baptized him. Quite remarkable. And in verse 31, he says that the very reason that God sent him to baptize with water, the express purpose was so that Jesus might be revealed, so that he might be unveiled to Israel. So how important is the baptism of Jesus? Well, it's necessary to unveil Jesus and his mission to the nation, and ultimately to the world. And that's why it features... It features prominently at the front end of all four Gospels. Jesus' public ministry begins here. And that means Jesus' baptism is akin to his ordination, or if you will, sort of like his installation service as Messiah. This is how Jesus unveils himself and inaugurates his ministry. And so this very simple and short text is precious because it is the attending ministers, John the Baptist's testimony about what happened and about what that tells us about the one who was baptized. So we'll make two points. They're there on the back inside of your bulletin. The Lamb of God and the Baptizer. The Lamb of God and the Baptizer. So first then, so we're in John chapter 1, beginning of verse 29. The first point is the Lamb of God. 
The text begins the next day. This is the day after John fielded questions from the Jerusalem delegation of Pharisees and temple authorities about his ministry and exactly who he was. It's a text we looked at a few weeks ago. So the next day, the day after that, he sees Jesus coming toward him and he says, Behold, or look, look, see the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the first identification of Jesus as the Lamb of God in history. And of course, John is referring to his atoning death. As Lamb, when we call Jesus Lamb, we mean he fulfills the whole Old Testament sacrificial system of animal offerings. It speaks of his meekness, his innocence, his purity, his spotlessness, his passivity in being willing to be offered up to satisfy the justice of God. Lamb of God means he's the servant of Isaiah 53, who's like a lamb, the prophet says, led out to slaughter, like a sheep, silent before its shearers. He is the final Passover lamb, whose blood delivers us from death, whose blood procures liberation. And notice in the text, Jesus is the lamb of God, meaning he's God's own provision, given out of God's kindness as your substitute. Remember the story where Abraham, the the dreadful, trembling, dark story where Abraham is about to sacrifice Isaac and a ram is supplied, caught in the thicket. In that sense, Jesus is the lamb who substitutes for us. Now, this is such a commonplace that I think sometimes the grandeur of it and the glory of it is lost on us. Notice what the Lamb of God does in the text. He takes away the sin, singular, notice that. He takes away the sin, singular, not sins, plural, the sin, singular, of the world, meaning the whole bundle of human sin. Considered as a mass, as one monstrous thing, he removes it. He carries it off. He takes away the sin of the world. Not just the sin of Israel, the sin of the world. This is a breathtaking vision of the magnitude and the scope, the extent and the power, the efficiency of Jesus' sacrifice. He scours sin out of the world. Yes, it's true. People must repent and believe. The atonement, this action, demands a human response. It is for all. It's classical in the church's tradition to say that the atonement is for all without distinction. But it will not be for all without exception because human beings can and do reject this most magnificent grace. But John's point in designating Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world is to get us to see that this atonement is sufficient for all of your sins. 
and the sins of the whole world. Nothing you have done, nothing anyone has done, cannot be pardoned and cleansed and purified in the ocean of this free mercy. There's no comparison between your sins and the free gift of the Lamb of God. There's no symmetry. It's not like the sacrifice of Jesus is just barely wonderful enough to cover your hideousness. That's not the case. Where sin abounds, Paul says, grace does much, much more abound. Though your sins are scarlet, they shall be white as snow. As far as the east is from the west, so far does this sacrifice remove your sins from you. God is in the business. Indeed, it is his chief business, his chief joy and delight to show mercy to defiled sinners. That's what he does. That's what the gospel is. But in addition, in addition here to being the first to designate Jesus as the lamb, what is also unique is that John is doing this in the context of having baptized Jesus. Right? And it's that baptism which can help enrich our understanding here and our love for and gratitude for Christ being the Lamb of God who takes away the world's sin. Right? Because it's at his baptism where his lamb-likeness first appears in public. So if you look at the accounts of Jesus' baptism in Matthew and Luke's gospel, there's a striking feature which stands out. It cannot be missed. John calls those coming to be baptized a brood of vipers. It's a remarkable first move by a public preacher. (laughs) He calls the people coming to his service. These people got up, left their house, walked for miles, came to John's baptism service, He opens the service with, you brood of vipers. They're they're coming to confess their sins. And then he asks a question, who warns you? Who warns you to flee from the wrath which is to come? And he continues. He says, the axe is already laid to the root of the tree. And every tree which doesn't bear good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. (laughs) The one who comes after me, John says, namely Jesus, will baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. So this clearly implies a kind of fiery purging, a fiery baptism at the hands of the Messiah. John continues, and he says again that Jesus, now again, I'm talking about in in Matthew and Luke's account. He says, Jesus is already ready with his winnowing fan to clear the threshing floor, to gather the wheat into his barn, to burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. So this is fire and brimstone preaching given to a people who are coming to be baptized and confessing their sins as they come. That's the context in which Jesus is baptized. So it raises questions, does it not? Like, what is going on? John clearly sees the coming of the kingdom in Jesus as a coming judgment. Salvation is always through judgment. And so when Jesus ushers in the kingdom of God, when Jesus appears in history and says, repent, 
the kingdom of God is at hand. He is bringing the final judgment of the last day forward into history. That's what accounts for all this fire and brimstone language from John the Baptist. But something wonderful happens in this story. And it's the reason why the church has always proclaimed the baptism of Jesus and must proclaim it after Advent. The one, the one who's going to administer the wrath which is to come, right? the one who has the axe in his hand, the one who baptizes with fire, who has the winnowing fan, who's ready to burn up the chaff, that one appears on the scene. And he's ready to usher in his kingdom. And how does he appear? He appears remarkably as one of us over there in the line of people waiting to be baptized by John. Like he's waiting on line with the guilty ones, shuffling along with the unwashed masses, ready to submit to John's baptizing ministry. It's so astonishing that John doesn't know what to make of it. You're coming to be baptized by me? I should be baptized by you, he says. This this means, beloved, that he identifies fully with Israel and with us under John's scathing account of this coming judgment. That's what Jesus, to be the Lamb of God, means Jesus bears that judgment which John preached. That's why the context of the baptism is so important here. It means that the Lamb is going to bear the judgment of the last day on your behalf in all of its fiery intensity. All of this revealed in his baptism means that his descent, his humiliation, does not stop with Christmas. It doesn't stop with the Incarnation. He descends even deeper into our own alienation and need, and that's why the baptism comes after Advent. And he's already doing this then, when we see him in the Gospels at the beginning of his ministry, at the very outset of his public ministry, he is saying, let the judgment due to these sinners be placed on my head. That's why he's in the line. He's standing with us, taking our side, taking up our cause. And this is a wonderful thing. Jesus is not identified with you as a sinner or with our need solely at the cross, but across the whole of his life. There's a wonderful statement from Calvin that I'm very fond of where he says, from the time he took the form of a servant, he began to pay the price of our liberation. From the time he took the form of a servant, he began to pay the price of our liberation. He lives identified with you so that he can die identified with you. You might remember that Jesus called his death a baptism. Right? And that's a baptism that's deeply linked to this baptism. Right? This baptism in water implies that baptism in blood. And that baptism in blood is the fulfillment of this baptism of water. 
And so his baptism then shows us the depth, the depth of his lamb-like sacrifice. He bears the full, fiery judgment and wrath of God due to us on his own head. He drinks fully, fully the cup the Father has given him. And so the baptism of Jesus, we've already seen two magnificent things. As the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world, the baptism shows us the breadth, the extent, the wideness of God's mercy. But as the one who bears this coming judgment, it shows us the depth of that mercy. Both of these are on display in our text. So that is the Lamb of God. The second point here, and it's connected to it deeply, is the baptizer. So in verse 34, John says, I've seen and I testify that this is God's chosen one, or in some Bibles it says the Son of God. The title here essentially means this is the Messiah. This is the Messiah. The one who sent John to baptize told him, told him the man you see the Spirit come on and remain is the one who will baptize with the Spirit. So John sees the Spirit descend on Jesus, and he tells us in the text, this is when I knew that this was the Anointed One or the Messiah. But again, among the couple of different enigmas in the baptism of Jesus, we might ask this, why does Jesus need to be anointed with the Holy Spirit? I mean, inasmuch as Jesus is God, he does not need to be filled with the Spirit. But his baptism is about Jesus as man, about his human nature. It's about him receiving the Spirit as a human being. Later, later John will tell us that God gives Jesus the Spirit without measure, in fullness. So what's going on in the baptism is that in your humanity, not only is Jesus standing with you in your humanity under judgment, he's receiving the Holy Spirit in fullness into our humanity. And the Spirit comes and remains on him, John says. Often it would just come and then leave Old Testament kings or prophets. But here we have one permanently anointed, permanently empowered. This is what enables, we saw this in the uh, New Testament lesson this morning from the book of Acts. This is what enables Jesus to do good, to preach, to heal, to carry on his public ministry as Messiah. He does all that in the power of the Spirit he received at his baptism. This is why he starts. This anointing in the Spirit is why Jesus starts his public ministry, opens his public teaching ministry at Nazareth in the synagogue with these words from the prophet Isaiah, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. But there is, crucially for us here, more. Notice this in the text. The one who bears the Spirit, who receives the Spirit, is also the dispenser of the Spirit. So we can put this simply, I think, and this is the crucial point here. The baptized one is the baptizer. The baptized one is the baptizer. The one on whom the Spirit is poured out in fullness is the one who pours the Spirit out fully. The one who receives the Spirit gives the Spirit. John could baptize in water, 
But John was powerless to give what the water pointed to, namely the Holy Spirit. But Jesus receives the Spirit into your human nature. And once ascended, he pours the Spirit forth on all flesh, Scripture tells us. This is in accordance with what the prophets had predicted what would happen. Prophets such as Joel foresaw a day when the Spirit would be poured out on all flesh. We had a reading from Ezekiel, which spoke of the Spirit being poured out and God cleansing and purifying his people and giving them new hearts. So he, who as the Lamb of God, takes away the sin of the world, gives the gift of the Spirit to every tribe and tongue and nation. Notice this then. Another way of putting this, the baptized one is the baptizer, but Jesus takes something away in this text, and he gives something. He takes away your sin and the sin of the world, and he gives you the gift of the Spirit. He takes away sin. The whole work of Jesus is placed before you in this text in the simplest of terms. He takes away sin. He gives the gift of the Spirit. It would be vain. All the purposes of God, all the atoning action of Christ, would be in vain if he didn't give the gift of the Spirit. The gift of the Spirit is how the work of Christ is applied to your life. It's how it becomes yours. It's how we possess it, that we might be renewed. So, there are two simple, very basic things, essential things that a text like this teaches us and calls us to. And they're really the meat and potatoes of the Christian life. And I think they make good New Year's reminders for us. Because you're baptized into the baptized one. So, Two points here in closing as application. First, I want to charge you to behold or to look, to see again, to gaze upon Jesus, baptized at the hands of John, marked off as the Messiah, destined for crucifixion. There, when you see him, is the Lamb of God whose life, his whole life, but especially his cross, but his whole life, takes away the totality of the sin of the world. And so there's a charge here to come to him daily, come to him hourly for the forgiveness of sins. Right? When John points out Jesus and says, there is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, that's the remedy for your guilt and for your sin. Of course, we tend to like to run and hide But the text is charging us to come. He does not turn us away. He does not deal with us as our sins deserve. His atoning death is deeper, and it is wider, and it infinitely exceeds the totality of your sin. Indeed, the totality of the world's sin. So look to Jesus and make this first great Christian confession. Behold the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world, And secondly, let me charge you that you must not think of Jesus only as the one who died for you. He's a complete Savior. He justifies and he sanctifies. He reconciles and he renews. Right? Sin 
has a, a sort of twofold profile in our lives, right? Sin makes us guilty, but it also enslaves us. There's guilt and power. We, re- we sang that in Rock of Ages, the hymn of preparation. Cleanse me from its guilt and its power. Well, as Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world, he deals with your guilt. But as the one who baptizes in the Spirit and gives you the Spirit, he deals with a breach, a breaking of the power of sin in your heart. Right? He now has received the Spirit for you, and he pours out the Spirit for you to flood your life with the Spirit. So when you gaze upon Jesus, Lamb of God, the baptized one, you should see the baptizer and seek him for the Spirit. Right? Paul tells us, be filled with the Spirit. Pray for the gift of the Spirit. Kindle the gifts given to you by the Spirit. Thirst for the Spirit. Ask for the Spirit. Yearn for the Spirit. Because it's the Spirit which unites you to the slain and now standing Lamb of God. There is no Christian life. No walking in it. In Christ without or by means of the Spirit. In this sense, we are charismatics in the deepest, fullest, richest sense of the word. Meaning, we believe in the gifts and the power of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit has this manifold glory in Scripture. We need comfort. It's the gift of the Spirit. We're ignorant and we need light. That is the gift of the Spirit. We despair, and we're despondent, and we need joy. That is the gift of the Spirit. We're weak, and we need power. That is the gift of the Spirit. We're impure. We need to be sanctified. That is the gift of the Spirit. We're cold, and we need to be inflamed, and the Spirit kindles the fire of love in our hearts. We're ugly and disordered, and the Spirit beautifies and renews, and brings glory. So let us, in 2018, cling to Christ crucified and risen. Christ the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. Christ the risen one who baptizes and renews with the Spirit. This is Jesus, revealed to Israel at the hands of John. This is the baptized one into whom you have been baptized. Praise be to God for the baptism of our Lord. Amen.